Rough Trade is giving away a third of the first three months of the Rough Trade Club plus new music membership exclusively to 101 Part-Time Jobs listeners. Become a member of Rough Trade Club New Music and you'll receive the Rough Trade Album of the Month straight to your door every month on an exclusive vinyl pressing with bonus material. Club members have received exclusive pressings of albums from Sufjan Stevens, Sprints, The Last Dinner Party, English Teacher and Over Mono, just to name a few, this past year alone. Sign up using the promo code CLUB101POD and you'll get Rough Trade's Album of the Month, Camera Obscura's Look to the East, Look to the West for a third of the usual price. By signing up, you'll be getting Rough Trade's exclusive issue of the album on opaque purple in a gatefold sleeve plus a bonus CD containing five demos. Don't want the album of the month but still want all the benefits? Sign up to the standard tier using Club 101 Pod and you'll still get the first month free. You'll also get free shipping on all orders, 10% off at the bar and on secondhand vinyl in store and exclusive access to sold out Rough Trade events. So don't hang around. Head to roughtrade.com slash club and sign up with the code CLUB101POD. That's CLUB101POD and claim money Money off Rough Trade's album of the month today. This offer is for UK residents only. Do you play in bands? I did for the longest time. And I wish that I knew that DistroKid was a thing. I don't even think it existed back then. DistroKid makes music distribution fun and easy with unlimited uploads and artists keep 100% of your royalties and earnings. A million plus artists rely on DistroKid to get their music on Spotify, Apple, YouTube, TikTok, Tidal, Instagram, and all the major streaming services. When you get DistroKid, you can see a DistroKid bank and withdraw your earnings. You get notified when you've earned royalties and you can withdraw via the app. And you can even check your streaming stats on Spotify Spotify and Apple. Get 30% off your first year on DistroKid by going to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. 30% off for your first year. That's not bad. We know it's a tough world out there. Why don't you make it easier for yourself? And to get 30% off that free year as an artist where you get 100% of your royalties and earnings, go to distrokid.com slash VIP slash 101pod. All right, stay with me. I'll be right back after this. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. I am Julie Marica, the host of the Daily Make Your Damn Bed podcast. Each bite-sized episode is less than 10 minutes long, so you can pair it with a good habit if you want, like flossing or making your damn bed, or you can just tune in whenever it feels right and you need a little jump start. We are all consuming a ton of content every single day, so why not start your mornings off with something a little more optimistic, realistic, and approachable? 
I am sure to include a lot of actionable tips and tricks to make starting your day and life in general just a bit easier and more enjoyable. The goal is to help you get out of bed so you can start making it. So check out Make Your Damn Bed podcast today wherever you listen to podcasts or visit www.makeyourdamnbedpodcast.com. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. You're listening to 101 Part-Time Jobs with me, Giles Bitter, where I tend to speak to bands about their jobs off stage, what they do when they're not playing music, which is a full-time job in itself. So this one's slightly different in that we've got a very special guest, Thurston Moore of Sonic Youth, of course, and he's about to release his new solo album, By the Fire, tomorrow, the 25th of September. And this song, Cantaloupe, playing below this, is on that. I'm looking forward to digging into the full length, looking forward to spending some time with it. Given the opportunity, I wanted to speak to him about his life, about what inspires him, and how he looks back on his time in Sonic Youth. He tells me about living in London, living in New York, and how he recorded By the Fire, at the Total Refreshment Centre here in London. East London's signature brew have been brewing music-inspired beers and supporting live music since 2011. You may know them from their collaboration beers brewed with the likes of Mastodon, Idols, Slaves, Mogwai and a whole load more. And as a listener to this podcast, you can get 10% off their website, signaturebrew.co.uk by using the code 101podcast at checkout. All right, here's Thurston Moore. It's an it's an honor to to speak to you. As Steve Lamac said last year at the Great Escape, I believe that you know retuning, detuning guitars for a long time now, both sides of the Atlantic. Yes, <laughs> and you're just about to put out a new solo record. Yes, that's true. What's that experience been like so far? Well, it's been great. I mean, I, w- I probably most likely would have been putting this record out regardless of the uh, situation in 2020 uh, of the, all this chaos that's surrounding the globe right now. Um, so I, uh, I'm not quite sure if the uh, pandemic has made much of a, of a, of a difference in my intention, but it's funny because the record is called by the fire and it was called that because I was really into the idea of putting records out that, deal with the aspect of total communication. Like they're like these tools of communication and the title in a way is references this film that I remember seeing um, that was made on the life of Joe Strummer by um, the gentleman who documented uh, the pistols and, and the clash um don letts no not don letts um uh and, and um our friend uh julian temple okay and um, i'm sorry i'm a little blank right now i don't know why and so yeah uh and julian temple who i've met and i've talked to in the past and he's a really uh, he's a sweet man uh he made this great film uh about joe strummer and in the film he he interviews the people who were friends of Joe's before he started the clash when he had the one ers and he was more kind of a rucksack kind of hippie, uh, rock and roller guy. And, um, and so the device that, uh, Julian uses is, uh, having all these people sitting around a campfire and talking and relating stories. 
And I really liked it. I thought it was a really powerful image. And I like the idea of just like that uh, is, is as old as it gets in the human history of just like people sitting around the campfire and, and talking and debating and arguing and agreeing and laughing and, and, and uh, feeling free and, and safe and, and uh, around this fire and passing the peace pipe as native Americans would in their history. And so I, uh, I had decided to have this record be in reference to that. And it's called by the fire. And as it happens, you know, we're just sort of living in this time now where there's this, there's this, this, there's such an uprising uh, uh, of, of, of people who are just, you know, um, really have reached the limits of dealing with demagoguery and, and, and so-called democratic countries, uh, whether it be the UK or whether it be the USA as and very, especially in the USA right now, whether quite a bit of uh, fires happening in the streets and those fires are kind of their own discussions. And so I, um, I felt like it, 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 in a way it was pretty conducive to what's going on right now in the moment. Um, this recording. So I just had to, yeah. sorry, go on. Yeah, no, that's it. <laughs> I, 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 was, I, I, uh, I just had to quickly Google that a Julian temple. It didn't stand out for me either. And I Googled it and immediately realized it's the future is unwritten. The future and it's, is unwritten. Yeah. It's a great film. And yes, yeah, it's, it's towards the end. They, they, all of his friends are saying how the, the campsite fire is, is so symbolic of, of Joe Strummer and, and, and the clash, right? Because right. It's, it's, it's all about stories. That really stuck with me when I saw the, when I saw the film, it really struck me and mm. I always held on to it. And so this title is um, in, in a way is reference, referencing that. I mean, for me personally. Uh, and so um, there you go. And you've been living in London for. It's going on about seven, eight years now you know, Sonic Youth have always kind of appealed to Europeans as much as I'm 29. So a lot of that I've read about rather than experienced myself. Did you always feel comfortable in England and Europe? Well, I certainly didn't know the England that I know now because it was always a passing through situation. Although in the 80s when we came here and Paul Smith, who was uh, running the label Double Vision for Cabaret Voltaire coming out of Mute Records was Daniel Miller and that the whole situation there and then like that relationship with Rough Trade. So we we jumped into that uh, through this gentleman, Paul Smith, who wanted to put out Bad Moon Rising, uh, our third proper LP, uh, more or less, and um, in, in the mid-'80s. And so we kind of decamped here for a while. And it's funny because I live in this area of London called Stoke Newington, and I used to stay in Stoke Newington in the eighties and it was quite a, quite a different vibe then. Um, uh, this, this area of London has, has really changed quite a bit. I think there's been a lot of movement in, in the, in, in, in the kind of lifestyles that are here, I suppose. And, uh, what do you remember about, that sort of time back back then, what, what, what well, was it was a more sort of modest uh, kind of uh, means of living here. I mean, I think families had more modest means, and it's a bit more moneyed now. And I think a lot of like parts of London are like that, where this kind of real estate migration, where it, it kind of um, uh, there's it, it sort of caters to uh, to people who sort of have more revenue, and so it's it's a bit of a you know it's a bit of a it's a bit of a conflict of, 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 
of, of, of settlement because you're kind of living in places that it kind of makes you curious because it makes me curious in New York City is this sort of like the idea of like real estate sort of giving more monetary value to a place that didn't always have it. And so the people who can't afford it, where do they go? They just keep moving. So there's this migration that's always happening because, mm. because of economics. So when I moved, when I lived here, when I can, when I used to stay here in the eighties, um, I used to stay with my friend Richard Boone, who was working at Rough Trade. He was the gentleman who came out of Manchester who started New Hormones Records and put out the first Buzzcocks 7-inch, Spiral Scratch wow. in 77. And um, so he he's somebody I knew from Rough Trade, and he he has he still lives here. He was like the – he was a head librarian at the Stoke Newington Library until it, it closed. And um, <clears throat> so – at that time, I used to just come here and stay with stay with him, and I would come up to the high street and take the bus into Central London just to go looking at, at record stores and bookstores. And uh, but at the same time, in the eighties, what was happening around in this this area of London was a lot of experimental music was happening. A lot of like people devoting themselves to free improvisation music as a genre of music. Mm. Um, the Vortex uh, Pub was here, where a lot of music was happening with people like John Stevens and Derek Bailey and Evan Parker. And, and when I started getting into that music, I, I would, I would take a bus to Stoke Newington to see it at the vortex and remembering Stoke Newington as the place I used to stay. It was a bit of a, you know, it was a bit of a, um, a wild area. I, I was never, I, I always felt like it was at the end of the earth because I didn't know London that well. I only knew what, what a visitor would know. So living here, Actually, when I came back to Stoke Newington, I didn't recognize it because it had become quite gentrified. Wow. And there's a, I mean, instead of the vortex, there's a Nando's chicken, you know, and across, yeah. the, and across the street is a Whole Foods. And, you know, and, um, you know, it's just, a, it's, it's a different, it's a different dem- demographic than I, uh, I recall. For the namesake of, of this podcast, it's, it's a podcast that I started after touring in, in my old band. I always found it fascinating speaking to band members about what they did between tours. Mm-hmm. And there's loads of things I think this, that this subject applies to you because, I mean, we're talking about London now. I mean, I pay £500 a month. That's dirt cheap. Yeah. How can you, you know, not a lot of people can, can do that. And playing in bands now is expensive. Practice rooms are expensive now. Yeah. From what I've read about the 80s, is that this linear path wasn't quite there yet? So did you do you, you kind of jump into the unknown and you kind of had to immerse yourself in that rather than take a decision? Decisions were always sort, of, for the most part, for me, were in the moment. And sometimes you could have a sort of a long vision. I don't think the band had any kind of long future vision until we actually sort of made a little bit of money by signing to Geffen records in 89, 90. And it allowed us to sort of um, not work day jobs anymore. All through the eighties, it was, it was basically working day jobs and then quitting them or being able to take that time off to go on the tours we did, which were basically break even tours. If you were lucky, it was never, the agenda was never about, capital it was you know it, the the idea was that if you could have enough money for petrol and uh, some sustenance from from show to show from town to town from venue to venue you were doing okay there was really no models of success uh 
at that point for bands playing experimental post-punk music at all. I mean, I mean, I, I guess if there was, it would be like possibly like Public Image Limited or something like that, a really high, right. pro, a high profile group like that. But that group already had a legacy by coming out of something as as world renowned as as the Sex Pistols. But most bands, I mean, be it like Swell Maps or This Heat or the Raincoats or whatever, um, you were you you all kind of were in the same boat as far as like um, the compensation you got for making records and playing gigs, which was probably just enough if you were lucky to maybe pay that month's rent. And so you'd be offset by having day jobs. So not to have a day job was a huge, huge, huge thing. And that was after being in a band for 10 years and um, coming at the beginning of the nineties, I think we sort of found ourselves in a very fortuitous place when, a, when the band Nirvana became quite Nova and drew a lot of attention to bands like us um, playing the music we played because it was in the light and it was in the wake it was in it was around the glow of that band and it kind of came into our favor and um and so we became our profile became quite high throughout the 90s um i was just talking to somebody uh, a good friend of mine lydia lunch on the phone the other day and she was talking about like how she used to see sonic youth with 15 people on a tuesday night at cbgb's and then 15 years later watching us in the nineties playing in front of 15,000 people and playing the same music and just wondering how that was working and like, can, how, how, how much sustainability there would be with playing that kind of music. And, yeah. it, and so, yeah, I mean, it just sort of, it, it was a very interesting thing, but yeah, I mean, as far as like downtime, I, for me, it's like, Touring has always been really a bit of a constant. So when there would be like a two or three month downtime, it was very unusual. And I guess most people have told you like coming off tours, there was always this kind of PTD, this post-tour depression that would say. And, uh, and I still sort of, I think I've conquered that to some degree, maybe because I've been doing it so long and I, um, I feel like there's still the, there's still a bit of a confused state when you come back from traveling constantly, because it's, it's not just traveling. It's just like, it's, it's, it's intensified transitions. You know, you're sort of like mm. banging from one place to the next and your, your sleep patterns are completely disruptive. I mean, it was interesting when Sonic Youth did sort of have a higher profile and we had, we were being a little more catered to, and there was a bit of a, there was, there was a comfort zone there where, you were being taken care of. And that was, that to me is really interesting in retrospect, because I, I have a bit of a, a conflict about that, of just like having people making your decisions for you, management and tour managers. And, and you're, the ta- uh, you're the talent. You, yeah. So you're the talent and you're sort of like, okay, <clears throat> you're on stage at this time, do it, get off. Here's your bed. We'll wake you when you have to do something. And to me, that was like, kind of a gracious thing to have it was kind of fun um but at the same time i kind of like calling my own shots i like being responsible for my own measures um i imagine you must have been very self-motivated in the first place to to do it well we were certainly we certainly took care of our own business for quite some time before other people stepped in to do it for us and so to return to that kind of lifestyle was not 
it wasn't it wasn't an alien lifestyle. I, I think there's a lot of people who get involved with music and they they have a really quick ascension into popularity, and they get catered. They have that kind of system of being catered to really quickly, and then when it disappears, which it usually does, um, it's it they I think they feel a little spoiled, a little lost that they can't, they can't have that anymore. And they're not sure how to subsist uh, without it. Um, so, I mean, I wonder about that sometimes, especially in certain genres of music where you have a, a massive hit or you have at least some kind of massive recognition for, if you're lucky, a year or six months to a year, and then it is gone and it never really returns to that, that kind of glorious uh, explosion again, but your name still exists in the books and you maybe cashed in all this money and you bought the big house and the car. And then now you have to, now what? And I know there's a lot of people out there who must've had that experience in their lives and it happens really young. And now when you're, when you're kind of in your, Later years in your fifties, sixties, etc. It's just like look, you're always sort of in a way defined by that success that you had at such a young age. Hundred percent. My my old band that used to tour quite a bit. We went to Australia once. We did some played Reading and Leeds. Played you know did some really cool things for for being twenty one year olds. And what I can look back now is that I knew all about how I wanted to get to the point I wanted to get to, but I had no plan on what to do once i got there right and i wonder if that's very similar for a lot of people i i think it is i think it is i, I mean and it, it, because especially at that at that age when most people get involved with being in bands you're just out of your teens in your early 20s and it's usually for bands that have some modicum of success it happens at that initial state when you're kind of exciting to the to the listenership, to the public, to the critics, because you're new. You're only new once, you know, and you can, you can keep reinventing yourself like Bowie did or whatever, but um, that's, that's a rarity to, to find somebody who, who's successful at that kind of um, consistent reinvention, the consistent renewal of your, yeah. uh, you know, of, of your presence in, in, in the critical world. That's very rare. I mean, and, and you know, Bowie certainly had it, but um or the stones, you know, the stones sort of have it. Yeah, uh, the new stuff. Yeah. New stuff's great. <laughs> the, stones, <laughs> the last, the last. What was the last one? Okay, well, the last one they put out was one from um, Goat's Head Soup. But the one before that, it was, it was great. It was kind of, <laughs> it was. It's, the production was kind of. It's kind of naff, but it works. Right, right. So I don't think, you know, it'd be kind of interesting if like to talk to like Bill Wyman or, or something about like, do you have post-tour depression, you know, or do you just like, you, you, or do you just choose one of your like fabulous houses to go and chill out in? <laughs> yeah. 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 But what you say about, you know, you're only new once it makes me think, and you know, I, I don't want to be negative or whatever, but like as a, as a rock music journalist, my, one of my, my biggest qualms of day-to-day life is the PR release that says, you know, new thing fresh out the gate (laughs) you know or like come back from trials and tribulations you know right or you've never heard you've never heard such a thing in your life um how did you navigate doing that because you've been doing it so long now and you know you can hear this this record sounds so fresh thurston yes i'm brand new baby um (laughs) yeah i you know i i i've sort of got to the point where i 
I, when I sort of have creative impulse, I don't really consider, um, I don't consider the standards of, of the marketplace of independent music when I'm doing it. Let's put it that way. And so to, for, you know, and for better or worse, you know, that, that you know, I probably, <laughs> I got even a little more focused on trying to play that, um, a little more succinctly. Uh, but I, I, I don't. And you know, when I come, I really, at this point in my life, I'm I just, I'm just turning 62 in a few days. And I just sort of like, um, I have this really, this vibe of just like, I really like sort of staying put and sort of writing music at home and which I've always done anyway. I've never been a studio person. I don't, I've never had my own sort of like recording apparatus that I sort of go and have tape machines and plug in. I mean, I'm lucky to be able to turn on a cassette recorder for God's sakes. I, I'm very sort of a, a, a bit of a Luddite when it comes to t- technology. Um, I sort of know my way around things. Sonic Youth had our own sort of home studio system that we recorded in. And when Jim O'Rourke was in the band, he was like our Vanguard um, producer slash mixing engineer. And so, and we had this great, analog neve board that we worked on but that's all gone and i've never really thought of it was something i could walk into because i could hardly turn on the light switch so it was always it was a bit of a group effort and i just kind of like i i brought in ideas and i would those ideas would germinate at home sitting on the couch or sitting on the bed with a guitar and i would try to remember it or i would put it on a cassette tape or i would flip open my laptop and try to record it using like whatever is on there. And, uh, so that's as good as it gets. I mean, I just recently got like a, 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 a an eight track little digital, uh, zoom machine that, yeah. um, I, I, I use for the, in the most basic tenant. And so I, uh, I, uh, I, um, and I've been enjoying it. It's like, it's kind of like, you know, all these years later, I've actually figured out how to do something like that. But, I sort of more into just being uh, creating without having to sort of deal with the technological aspects of it. So yeah, um, it's all about the ideas and then sort of going somewhere where they can be sort of man- made manifest. You know, did, did you ever have difficulty you know recreating the same vibrations that you made at home you know because you might be playing on a, a strat and you, you you got this sound you got this vibration but did you ever find it hard to recreate that in the studio sometimes but i've sort of i i've gotten to the point where i, I know how to sort of um deal with that and you know i mean because i if i play here through like a little tiny um shoebox amplifier it has a very cool sound and it I does. Know, yeah, and I know I'm not going to really get that sound by going to the studio and plugging into my two by twelve, you know, hundred watt PV uh, yeah. combo amp. It's just going to be. It's a different. That is a different vibe. And so I'm I, not sure I, if you're a fan, but Jaw, Jawbreaker on on that DU record, um, like a lot of that uh, sort of primary guitar that you hear is is from one of those shoebox Marshalls. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's you know, it's. It's cool. I mean, I know a lot of people work that way. I mean, I'm sure I know that I've, I've always heard that Jimmy Page uses tiny little amps and mm-hmm. Neil Young used Neil Young used like a tiny little Fender Tweed 10-inch amplifier on stage that he would use as a monitor just so he that's what he was listening to. 
and um, right. on stage. He was listening to himself play through that. And, yeah, and that was what was coming through his his stage front. Um, <laughs> Great. When you were touring, did you did you find it hard? I mean, obviously, you've got to have a life off off the road. Did you yeah. did you find it hard to kind of I don't know keep that aligned? I suppose I have a recollection of like doing really lengthy tours and coming back and then having days of just being rather um, rather confounded about how to get through those days uh, and, then, and, and then sort of finding some kind of pace and then the anxiety when you know that like a, a major tour is coming up within a few weeks and like getting prepared for it and that yeah. anxiety of being on the road. And um, I still sort of go through it a little bit, especially coming into a tour, like getting ready to go and get into a van or get into, it's been a while since I had a, the luxury of being on a, a, a bus tour, but um, that kind of vibe. And or, I'm really looking into doing more touring using trains uh, because I think it's, it makes a little more um, ecological sense, which is kind of important more so than ever right now. And so I, 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 the last little tour I did was, it was all by train. Um, but you know, it's like when you have as many guitars as I carry around, it's, it gets to be, it's a little much. Well, if you have to have two splitters, one for, one for the people and then one for the gear, it's better one than two, right? Yeah, trains are trains are expensive in the UK, and then trains are trains aren't exactly the, the, the ch- a cheaper alternative either. So, do you have any superstitions about about touring? <laughs> um, no, but I remember some somebody uh, in Australia when we went there in the nineties and going there, and everybody was in a really felt like they were in a really good place, and the the promoter of that tour was this woman who said like, well, I made sure that you came here at a time when the, everything was in, in a good line astrologically. And so she was very, <laughs> sen- very sensitive to like the moon uh, placement for our tour. And I was like, God, that is so cool. That is so smart. I was like, I, I wish, I wish every promoter would sort of have that same regard for like touring as to say, this is when you should tour. When this is, you know, when, the, when, when these planets are lined up, this it's perfect for you. Um, but so sometimes I have a little anxiety about that. Like, God, I, I hope the planets are lined up okay. And sometimes you go out on tour and like, oh, you know, we're we're, we're actually um, there's some supposedly there's some the horoscopes say there's some really dark times we're coming into. I'm like, oh, great, thank you, that was really cool, you know. <laughs> Or you're touring. We coming from the USA. We knew nothing about um, European and UK football, and so you know we when we first toured. Sometimes you would run into um, uh, you you would ha- you would run into conflicts with people's football viewing schedules, which wasn't something that we really had so to deal with so much in the USA. Uh, but it was really something that we realized, like you do not tour Europe, you know, during the finals or something like that. Because that was something I've learned as I've got older that you can like punk rock and football. You can. You can. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. I feel like as, as a teenager, they're pretty paradoxical things. I remember reading an interview with 
um, Liam Gallagher, the singer. Yeah. Um, <laughs> big city fans. Big city fans. And he, uh, but like asking about like why he decided to sing with his brother who's playing electric guitar. And he said like, well, I was more interested in football and I thought people who played in bands were rather, rather poofy. Uh, but you know, but then I heard somebody else doing it. And I thought that he, I thought like, well, I could do better than that. So he said, I was always, a, it was always a bit of a competitive thing in the way that football was. And so I, I kind of got into it with that, with that, in, with that kind of mindset. And, I was like, wow, that's really that's, that explains so much. <laughs> Being such a colonial country, I think we, I think there is this weird ingrained competition mm. in people in in the UK. Yeah, I, 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 I realize that. I see that as well. I mean, for the most part, and yeah, I think you see that all over the place. You see that in America too. I think we sort of came out of. Um, I mean, we sort of came out of a scene all through the eighties of playing like the underground music scene in the eighties, like when we sort of found like-minded bands that we connected with, be it meat puppets or the Minutemen or mm. butthole, butthole surfers and mud honey later on. And it's like, there was never really a sense of competition. It was more of, it was definitely a sense of camaraderie and a sense of fascination with what each person was doing, um, which, what each band was doing. And I felt like the, uh, the that factor of competitiveness sort of, became more prevalent after the success that happened with a band like Nirvana. And I know that knowing the, the Nirvana lads, they like, they kind of also came out of what I was talking about and realizing that they created this situation where all of a sudden there was this new kind of somewhat bogus goal to, to, to achieve um, because it was it was it was so outrageously um, different than what had anybody had experienced at that point except for maybe the only the only bands from our scene that had experienced anything like that was REM but the REM was a bit of an anomaly they sort of came out of that underground scene but they kind of became quite um, accepted in the mainstream fairly early on but they still they still had that sort of foothold into the same world we were coming out of i was just thinking of of rem because in the in trouble boys that replacements book paul westerberg talks about them it had kind of has this kind of love-hate relationship with them and Mm -hmm. it kind of i read it from a place of maybe some unwanted i don't know not unwanted jealousy but you know what i mean somewhere like Mm -hmm. that well it's hard it's hard not to sort of be sort of i don't know if competitive is the word but possibly envious of someone's success when they have it in the um in a place where that success never existed before so like in the 80s there was no band that really had any bigger success than any other really i mean like a band like us started getting more popular and people i remember bands would look at us like wow you guys are really uh you know, everybody's writing about you and people are coming to see you, but it was never this thing where it got too out of hand. So the, there were, you know, like in the hardcore scene, like a band like the like Black Flag or the Dead Kennedys were like sort of kingpin bands of that scene. But it was always with a lot of, there was always a lot of respect for it. And they were sort of like the perennial headliner bands, but they would always have, you know, 14 bands 
supporting them on every single gig. So it was always this kind of really familial thing. It was like a family of, 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 of in the scene. And we always, we felt like that was sort of what was always going on. The, the, but the Nirvana explosion really sort of changed that. And I think that kind of was maybe a, a bit of a weird thing for those three, uh, you know, for a while. Certainly it was, I mean, certainly it was for, for, for Kurt. And I think for Chris and Dave, it was just like they, they both processed it in their own individual ways, you know, with good regard too. I mean, I just read this book by Paul Hanley of the fall called have a bleeding guest, which was all about the making of hex induction hour. And then, and I'm follow that by reading a book that was written earlier by his brother, Steve Hanley, who was the bass player in the fall at that, in that same period of that group uh, called the big midweek. And, um, it's they're both really hilarious books because they, a lot of them just sort of deal with their de facto leader, the singer Marky Smith. Yeah. But Mark, but, Mark, but, Mark, but he, it seemed like it's really funny because Marky Smith is in those books is constantly at odds with bands that are familial to him coming out of Manchester, be it the Smiths or even Echo and the Bunnyman and bands that he came up with because the fall start fairly early. They start in seventy six, seventy seven. And to see, and so when these bands start making more critical headway than than the fall, uh, it, it's really it's it's kind of a it's it's amusing to hear Marky Smith's asides about these bands and instantly hating them because of their success. So, <laughs> and it's in that 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 hate is just based on one thing: is that like, yeah, you're doing better than us, you know, in the marketplace. So it's yeah. I mean, what's the Morrissey song? We hate it when our friends become successful or whatever. I feel like maybe we should uh, read those books by the Hanley brothers after reading Marky Smith's book himself, Renegade. Oh God! Well, Renegade, Renegade is 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 just a rambunctious kind of rant of a book, and uh, you know it's it's fun to read, but it's just like it's it, yeah, it's it's a wild long night at the pub. It gives uh, you more insight as as to as to him, you know, like because it's just like that. There is no solution to this to this person. <laughs> but the Hanley books are great. I mean, they're really they're very insightful to not only with that that gentleman's psyche, but just sort of like the this just like the the, the, the psychology of, of being in a band, even if it's a band as 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 radical as the fall. Um, mm, and, mm. But it really it's it's really great if you've been in a band to read those books and to sort of in one way relate exactly to what that is that, that that dynamic is because it's like it could it's it, it goes it's hot and cold from one day to the next and you know that you've been you've toured with a band you know like with that you are sitting on each other's laps every day i mean it's like you're like and you're stuck with each other in buses and vans and cars and trains and airplanes and then when you get to the, the gig, you're even closer because you're all stuck in the little dressing room facing each other, waiting. <laughs> yeah, it's trying to get that kind of sort of comfort from being inebriated, you know. It's like, it's, yeah. it's, it's an experience that you can only really have by doing it and, and, and having that. And I, um, I've been sort of writing a lot about it lately. I've just been thinking about like what that dynamic is um, 
and what is really there's something very uh, unappealing about it, but at the same time, it's like you wouldn't trade it for the world. That experience, you know. Um, well, you feel like this is your one chance. Yeah, you know? yeah. There's an element of that I think that I think a lot of people have, and it, it makes me think two things. First of all, I, I found that it must be. It, it, I, well, I, I personally found it incredibly hard to feel like a professional. Like it's a job, mm. like something that I should do neatly and as well as I can when I stink like shit and, and I'm like, I'm having to smile when I don't want to smile. Right. <laughs> um, well, yeah. you know? And that was something that massively appealed to me about Marky e. Smith's uh, Renegade is that he was just completely unapologetic about oh, yeah. being like, no, you're shit. Let's yeah. get a new person. <laughs> And it's taken me, I live in Deptford now in Southeast London. It's got such a rich musical history down here. And actually it's only in the last few years have I been able to feel like somewhat of a professional in what I do in, in music journalism, because it's all around me. History's, yeah, you know, Dire Straits uh, played their first gig here and Squeeze are from just around the corner. Yeah, Deptford, fun city. Exactly. Um, <laughs> by, uh, who was that run by? What the brother, Stuart Copeland. Yeah. One of the brothers. <laughs> Editors note, this is actually Miles Copeland that ran Deptford Fun City. And you talking about Stoke Newington, going up there now, there's, there's a few cool, few cool places. Uh, Total Refreshment Center. Well, a lot, of, a lot of my new record is done at Total Refreshment Center. Um, I, I, really like, I really like that place. Um, it's kind of what I look for in a kind of community art space. And then up in um, Dalston is Cafe Auto, which is very close which it's just to my, my good luck that, you know, one of the premier experimental music clubs at the world right now is it's just up the street, Cafe Auto. Um, mm. So, but it's all, everything's been shut down. You know, it's funny because when I sort of would get off the road, I would always sort of, uh, I think, annoy a lot of people or not annoy people, but maybe, um, I don't know if it's, let's see what the word it would be like maybe astound people by the fact that getting off the road, the, the, the one thing I, I start doing is I start going to, to clubs to hear music. And in one way it's sort of like when you're kind of, I know a lot of people who, who are in bands and when they get off of touring, the last thing you want to do is go into a club and hear music. Right. <laughs> We've just been doing that every night for like the last three months. And it's just like, forget about it. Like, and so you just sort of, you veg out, you stay away. But I, I, I used to sort of like regret having to go on tour sometimes because there were certain gigs I would miss by going on tour. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, Do you I, remember any, any, any big ones that you were really, really upset about? Well, God, really early on, the, before Sonic Youth, I was in a, I was in a band, a bit of an art school band called The Coachman. And one of the few gigs we had, 78, 79, when we were playing in New York, um, one night we had one of our rare gigs, which was like good news, or should be good news, but it just happened to be on the very same night as the very first time Public Image was playing in New York City. That was not cool because Public Image to me were everything. That was just like, they, uh, you know, they, they defined what was progressive and groundbreaking and what, uh, what, you know, in what was happening in, 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 in new post-punk music. And, um, they had come to New York and they were playing at this place called the Palladium. 
and we were playing at some uh, a place I can't even think of what the name of it was, and we played this gig. I think maybe twenty people were there, and were they? I don't even know if they were there to see us. We were playing with another band called Sick Dick and the Volkswagens. <laughs> <laughs> Which, in retrospect, you know what? I'm really glad I did play that gig because Sick Dick and the Volkswagens are this really curious sort of secondary tertiary kind of cog in the whole no wave scene of new york city and they were kind of a strange free jazz free noise group the guitar player also had a trio still does it's more or less called Borbeta magus which is two powerhouse saxophone players and noise guitar and so when I tell people that we played with Sick Dick and the Volkswagens, well, it matters who I'm talking to, but some people are like, oh my God, like that's like a mythic thing. Like whoever saw that band is like, well, I not only saw them, I played with them on this same night as public image play. <laughs> and it, <laughs> yes, yeah. Yes. <laughs> the way you describe them makes me think yeah. there's there are two bands, Folly Group and Black Country New Road, the, the latter of which I'm sure you must have heard. Sunglasses. What a song. Yeah, they're they're great. They're great. And um so yeah, and but not only did I miss Public Image's debut premiere concert in New York City. But a couple of days later, when I was bemoaning the fact that I had missed it, and I was at work, and I was working at MasterDisc, which was a, a studio, a mastering studio for records, I was working as a shipping clerk there. And Ed Ballman, who ran a, a record store in a label called 99 Records, which put out records by Liquid Liquid and ESG and Bush Tetras and Glenn Bronco, and I knew him from the store. Anyway, he had come up to MasterDisc to master the very first release that he was putting out on his label, which was the Glenn Bronco, first Glenn Bronco record, 12-inch record, lesson number one for electric guitar. And I started talking to him. I was like, oh, this is cool that you're putting your record out. And I was like, did you go see Public Image the other night at the Palladium? He's like, yeah, it was great. I was like, yeah, man, I missed it. My band was playing the same night. And I'm really bummed out, and I, I can't believe I missed that gig. It's like, well, <clears throat> didn't you see them last night? And I froze. My blood went cold. I was like, what are you talking about? He goes, oh, they did a secret gig at Great Gildersleeves, which is a club that was right next to CBGB. It was a bit of a heavy metal glam rock place. And Public Image had done a secret show there the night before. And, that, and I was in my little flat watching three's company on a black and white television set <laughs> and smoking cigarettes. Oh no. <laughs> and I was just like, I was just like, I stood there like thinking like, are you kidding me? Like, not a, like I had no excuse and I had lived like maybe like five minute walk away from this place. And, uh, and then through the years, everybody I would meet, um, saw that gig at Great Gildersleeves. It was like it was like everybody. I mean, everybody saw that gig. It became this thing of myth, and it was like. Cons- <laughs> and I and sometimes I would just like, I would like lie awake at night, nauseous, thinking like, what? Like how? How could have that happened? You know, and 
And then when the advent of video started happening and VHS tapes started happening, and all of a sudden there was footage that was available and I saw the gig. And you know what? It looked pretty cool. At that point, there was a lot of water went under the bridge by that point. Yeah. I think it's probably on YouTube. If you put like peel like great gilder sleeves, it's probably it's probably on YouTube. But I did see that I did finally see them. And they came back after Flowers of Romance and they played this place called the Ritz, which is a huge ballroom in Manhattan. And I went to that gig. And to to rub a little salt into the wound, a public image decided, let's play this gig behind a movie screen. There was a huge, huge video movie screen at the Ritz. It was considered the largest one in the world. And is and it was it, it hung in front of this rather large stage. And then when bands would come out, they would roll it up and the band would play. But it was like between bands, it would come down and there would be these huge videos of like Michael Jackson's thriller or whatever on the screen while you waited for the next band. <clears throat> and so um Public Image had this great idea of playing behind. This is like 1983 or something, and uh, 84, and they played behind this screen, and the and the audience, which I was a member of, began to riot and throw things at the screen and tear it down, and and uh, and the band ran away. So again, never saw. I went to see Public Image, but didn't really <laughs> didn't see them. See them, <laughs> and and except for there was one. One thing I really remember from that gig is Keith Levine running out in front of the screen and waving his arms, telling people to stop. And but and everybody started throwing pints at him. And uh, <laughs> and then Johnny John Lydon, his image, they had two movie, they had two cameras on the side of the stage filming them behind the screen, which would they would show up on the screen once in a while, and that made the audience even angrier. And at one point, John Lydon face was on the screen and he was taunting the audience like this huge wizard of oz face going like silly fucking audience silly fucking audience (laughs) that was wonderful but you have attempted to do much you know visual imagery stuff yeah over the years yeah i mean sonic youth did a lot of like visual um stuff (laughs) as we toured and we had every tour was especially when we were like touring big time, we would have like a couple of LDs, you know, a couple of lighting designers come with us and do some kind of uh, escapade. And so, right. and a lot of times we would, it was co-created with us. So they, they were always kind of um, quite, quite cool. I thought they were quite different. And with, when I do my solo touring, when I say solo touring, I mean, me and my group, uh, James Edwards and Deb Googe and Steve Shelley and Jim Dalton and, and um, John Lineker and I, when I go out, um, yeah, we, um, my girlfriend Eva has films that she shows that are really cool. And so we show those films sometimes and it really matters what kind of venue it is. Right. Um, I saw you in Zurich in a kind of boxy type venue, maybe like 500 cap. Was it Zurich? Possibly, yeah. A couple of years ago. But it was cool. It was very striking. And, but, but there was no visuals. I remember being, it was quite dark. That's usually probably just sort of like the lighting people at the club. And I always try to tell them not to keep it, not to make it dark. <laughs> <laughs> but they, they like it dark. 
and it's, when I go see a gig, I really kind of want to see the people on stage and I want to study them. I like, and that's always a thing for me. And when the light, when if it's, if it's too much lights or if it's all about the lights, I generally am bored or I'll leave. And, um, or if I can't see them, I, I leave. I don't, I kind of really, I want to see what they're doing. I want to see the process. I want to see the decision-making that's going on. Um, that's really important to me. And I've always, I've always gone to gigs hoping that's what I'll see. And so if I go to like huge concerts and I'm too far away, it's a bit of a bummer. Um, I try mm-hmm. to get, I always, I'm very tall, you know? And so I, I would always try to get to the very front of the stage, much to the chagrin of just about everybody behind me. <laughs> and usually I would turn around and there'd be this little, this little <laughs> void be like a, like a, the V formation of a void behind me and <laughs> people grimacing, you know, like it, it meant, you know, it matters what you do. I, you know, David Bowie had like the big neon light tour. I remember seeing that in the seventies. Mm-hmm. I thought, you know, that was like every house light was up in the venue. Like the, and that was kind of interesting. I know that when, when Fugazi first came over, I remember people were talking about it. Um, how they came over and instead of having lights per se, they just had a, um, some, a couple of clip lamps clipped on either side of the stage. And that was their lights for the stage. And Uh, everybody thought that was just completely brilliant. And, you know, and it was, but you know, it's like, well, you know, who's fooling who kind of thing, but it's, uh, but then, you know, I remember playing a gig with the horrors yeah, I played with them. I played. A, they asked me to play a song with them on cool. <clears throat> at the, some Enemy Awards thing a few years ago, and I rehearsed the song with them at their at their rehearsal space, and um, it was it was easy enough, and it was kind of cool. And I was like, okay, great. And so I I came out, and I couldn't I couldn't see what, what I was doing. <laughs> I mean, they had, they had so many psychotic, they had so many psychotic lights going on. They were just like, it was insane. I couldn't see them. I couldn't see my hands. I couldn't see anything except for like this. I felt like I was in some like, some hyper visual like explosion. And that, and, and that, and that, and that ran throughout their whole set. Like you couldn't really see the band. You would see certain weird shadows of the band kind of once in a while, but it was just, it was just all lasers just flashing everywhere. I mean, it was kind of cool, but it was just like, <laughs> like they're kind of interesting looking cats. You think, I think the audience would have liked to maybe catch a glimpse or two, but <laughs> you made a lot of the new record at total refreshment center. How, how did that come about? What was your introduction there and who, who engineered it? I, there's a fellow there named Christian, um, who who rents the studio there and um he he engineered it but i also used this another uh local uh uh studio cat here named sid kemp and he worked with me a little bit um i worked in different places i but i generally uh did a lot of the let's say post-production i put it all together uh pretty much at total refreshment center i found that place because i um was looking for a place to record something very quickly a couple of years ago. 
Hmm. And somebody had told me about it. And I, it has this really long history. It, it's, it's, a, it's a place that has a lots of um, heavy dub reggae sessions that go on there and parties and, and hmm. um, more sort of Africani music uh, uh, events there. When I was working there doing this record at one point, I was mixing and uh, Tony Allen, who has just passed away, the great percussionist, uh, was, was playing in the next room. And I, you know, rehearsing with like yeah. with some local people, things like that were happening there. It's it's a really sort of like it's a really um there's like different artist studios there. It's a real community arts place. So I, I really right. like it, and I think and there's there's a playing room there that I like. It's like a good rehearsal space. Um, it's very nearby. I could ride my bicycle over there, which I appreciate. London's best kebab place is right across the street. What's called best kebab? It's on it's on the um, I guess you would call it Kingsland Road, uh, and uh, and Folden Street, F O U L D E N, which is the street. Folden Street is where Total Refreshment Center is, so it's right in the corner of Kingsland Road and Folden Street. It's a destination kebab. It's it's we're lucky to have it here, and I'm a vegetarian too, so it's like slim pickings for me. But right, um, they they. They make it work. You get some good veg in the Turkish places around there, and I imagine that. That's true. Well, I'm pescatarian, so you can get some good grilled sea bass around here. Excellent. Well, I, I like to keep these about an hour, an hour long. <laughs> it's been great to hear these stories, Thurston. Um, I'd love it if you came down to Deptford. I'll, I'll show you around. Oh, please do. I've always wanted to go. I mean, the MC5 played in Deptford, so that's like a... Really? I think so. I think there's some legend about the MC5 playing there. Have you have you found anything in London? Any any new hobbies? Oh yeah, I mean, when I first moved here, I I really, as I was getting myself together to sort of play music with different people here, and that just that happened really organically, uh, mm-hmm. meeting James Edwards and then and then Debbie Guge coming in, and um, that was really wonderful. And then um, Eva and I would just walk miles and miles and miles around here, North London. We would just just jump on buses, which is a great way to sort of really sort of see the geography of the city. Um, mm. But I remember going, I, I would go to like secondhand bookstores, which I really love doing. And London still has good secondhand bookstores. And I would yeah. go, up, I would go up to Cecil court and uh, hit those bookstores. But there was a gentleman in one of those bookstores who was a poet. And I was out telling him about how, fascinated i was by a london that i'd never realized by coming here for 20 years and he said well even people who are born and raised in london it the city reveals itself distinctly to each person uh in its own way you know and it's really layered i mean because it's so old and it has such an incredible history that there's just like there's these layers of ghosts and spirits in 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 london you know beneath the cobblestones and Mm. so he said it it, it's continually fascinating for people who live here it's like you're always there's always discovery happening and and it reveals itself really personally and i found that to be very true and there's a a block of flats just down here so deptford's kind of right on the on the thames right and so ours we live at the north side of the high street so we're just maybe three or five minutes away from the Thames, which is mm-hmm. awesome, you know, when the tide's incredible, know, yeah, gone to the little beach bit. But on, on the way there, there is like a, a block of old council flats, 
and the railings outside right you know I've lived in exactly the same for me I've lived in you know North London grew up there all my life moved down here did not realize the these the, the gates of these council estates are old were, were you taken out from there used as stretches as in used as stretches in World War II and then replaced back in there as gates oh that's great that's amazing and it's just unreal and things like that you're like wow you know if you weren't interested in it through a book that makes you interested yeah i love it and i love and i love traveling around england and just sort of like seeing you know when i would tour a lot with sonic youth like doing shows in london and manchester and bristol whatever you would just go to these hot spots and when i moved here i did a tour in a volvo station wagon with the folk blues guitar player michael chapman and um and that was wonderful because uh, we just played everywhere and and mm. played these little pubs and that was that was and so I st- I still do that and I really love doing that and so I look forward to doing that again as soon as um, you know as as soon as the um, the Tories relinquish power and get rid of the bozo so we can have some. <laughs> real good times again excellent uh, i shouldn't speak about civics or politics we're citizens of the world are we not we are <laughs> all right thank you so much there okay thanks it was really nice talking to you i've been working all day for me mate on the side running around like a blue ass fly i've been working yeah i've been working all day for me mate every bleeding This is a Mighty Moon Media Podcast. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hello, I am Julie Marica, the host of the Daily Make Your Damn Bed podcast. Each bite-sized episode is less than 10 minutes long, so you can pair it with a good habit if you want, like flossing or making your damn bed. Or you can just tune in whenever it feels right and you need a little jump start. We are all consuming a ton of content every single day, so why not start your mornings off with something a little more optimistic, realistic, and approachable? I am sure to include a lot of actionable tips and tricks to make starting your day and life in general just a bit easier and more enjoyable. The goal is to help you get out of bed so you can start making it. So check out Make Your Damn Bed podcast today wherever you listen to podcasts or visit www.makeyourdamnbedpodcast.com. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.